Hail witches, Angel here, your co-host of the Science Witch Podcast, with another edition of the Wild Witches series. For this episode, I wanted to share a recording I made of a panel presentation I did at Biggest Little Fur Con in Reno, Nevada, with my partner Triad Fox, on the topic of furry and the occult. We got a lot of requests to share this after the convention, so hopefully those of y'all out there who were not able to attend in person will enjoy listening to this presentation. After the panel, we had a discussion where participants discussed their own experiences with deity, which I have put on our Patreon for free, along with the Google Slides document that we gave at the presentation, which contains links to all the artists that I used in the presentation. So if you're interested in hearing the full panel discussion, as well as accessing this presentation, check it out over on our Patreon. In this panel, we talk about anthropomorphic deities across several pantheons, including Kemetic, or Ancient Egyptian, Vedic, or Ancient Indian, and pre-Christian Europe. We then open up the discussion and pose the idea that furry subculture is more than just a fandom or a hobby and invite us to consider it a divine expression of creativity. The panel was a culmination of nearly 10 years of collaborative ideas and conversations between myself and my partner, Triad, who is also an occultist and practitioner of the magical arts as well as a furry. And this is a topic we've been discussing for a long time, and it was great to share it with the furry community at the largest furry convention to come back after COVID. The panel was so well received, it felt like an affirmation from the universe that other people are yearning for this deeper spiritual dimension to our creative fandom experiences, and that furry can be a conduit towards inner divinity. In my comments, I referenced the book The Artist Way by Julia Cameron, which is a 12-week self-guided system for unblocking creativity, and the foundation of the process is rooted in the idea that creativity is a divine expression. When we allow ourselves to be creative for the sake of creativity and not for any external reasons, we are closer to the expression of our divine selves. I find this to be especially relevant in the furry fandom, which is the only fandom that is completely self-generated, as my partner says in this presentation. Furries make up thousands of individuals all over the world who are engaging in creative endeavors to express their most authentic selves, which to me is an inherently magical act. Further, we connect the fandom to to an ancient practice of anthropomorphized versions of deity and how we as furries are in a way the inheritors of this expression of what it is to be human. We hope you appreciate this recording from the panel at Biggest Little Fur Con and invite you to continue the conversation over on our Patreon and the official Discord server that Searching for the Fern created after the convention for all of us to keep in touch. Link in the show notes. Triad and I intend on hosting another occult meetup at the next Biggest Little Fur Con in 2020 in June, so if you happen to be attending that, check us out. The next Science Witch Podcast episode will be a discussion on the magic and science of crystals with Nicholas Pearson, so be sure to stay tuned for that. I'm also in the process of getting our Edune stickers completed and printed, as well as the Morgan stickers, with art by my very talented sister-in-law, Christiane. Check out our Patreon for more information or if you're interested in just buying the stickers, check them out on our Etsy page.
And now, without further ado, here is our presentation at Biggest Little FurCon on furry and the occult. So this presentation is going to be, the first part is going to be sort of uh, a presentation about what we mean by furry and the occult. And then after the presentation, we have some time, we're gonna open it to a roundtable discussion. And I'll be really interested to hear y'all share your own experiences with the occult. So if you have time to stick around for the open discussion, that'll be after this presentation. So this isn't just a presentation, this is an invitation <laughs> to be able to share your own experiences. So before we get started the presentation, I just want to make a land acknowledgement that we acknowledge that we stand on unceded indigenous land of the Washoe, Washoe, Shoshone, and Paiute people who have called this land home for tens of thousands of years. We extend our gratitude and appreciation for the opportunity to present at this convention, and we want to honor the indigenous people, land, and spirits of which we stand upon. So, um, my name's Triad Fox. I've been in the furry fandom for probably over 20 years, about the same amount of time I've been into the occult and the esoteric. I'm normally drawn towards Thelema, uh, which is Aleister Crowley's form of mysticism, Hermetic and traditional Kabbalah, um, entheogenics like, you know, plant, fungi-based, psychedelics, things of that nature, discordianism, Hilarious. Uh, Hilarious. <laughs> uh, dowsing, British traditionalist Wicca, and a lot of other practices. I also create uh, furry comics and psychedelic art, a little bit of which you can see on the screen there, and also psychedelic electronic music centered around analog synthesizers, which you can also see. Um, I also create a uh, furry science fiction universe. The first book just got published uh, earlier this month called The Anasian Universe, which is an expansive, open-ended, and collaborative furry sci-fi universe that people are welcome to contribute to and be a part of once we get things moving a bit more. Uh, in addition to that, uh, you can find my FA and so furry on there and my Twitter. But I'm happy to be here and happy to see all of you and see if we can uh, talk about some esoteric stuff together. Hey. And we're partners, by the way. That wasn't like the budget Okay, so I'm Angel. I use they, them pronouns. I have also been a furry for about 20 years, which feels really weird to say. I have also been a practicing witch for about 10 years. And I've always felt like furry and my witch identity are closely tied to my innate magic. And it's something I've always felt since I was as long as I could remember. I also co-host uh, the Science Witch Podcast, and I'm also one of the coordinators of the Wild Witches of the Willamette, based out of Salem, Oregon, and uh, Cascadia Furs, which one of my fellow coordinators is here with us today, um, Kiara. So thank you. Um, I follow an eclectic witchcraft with an emphasis on green magic, and also I am working on my yoga certification and I'm teaching yoga tomorrow at 10 a.m. So I invite y'all all to come out. And um, my patron deities are uh, Shashat, who's the Egyptian goddess of science and math, and Sekhmet, who I think many of us know already. And they are both uh, Kemetic or ancient Egyptian deities. 
I also belly dance and hula hoop, and I'm an artist of various distractions. I, I like most of my art's digital, and I also love to play tabletop gaming like RPGs, Pathfinder, D&D, Shadowrun. Also very much a Shadowrun fan. Let's start off by an anthropomorphic as a definition. So anthropomorphism is the attribution of human traits, emotions, and intentions to non-human entities. And it's considered an innate tendency of human psychology. So we, as furries, we're just taking what is an innate human trait to a more creative and exciting level. And then the personification is related to the attribution of the human form and characteristics to abstract concepts such as nations, emotions, natural forces, or animals. Yeah, please have a seat. And uh, of course, you can see some of the more recent examples of anthropomorphic characters. So that's something I wanted to mention is that this idea of attributing human characteristics onto animals is an ancient and sort of almost something innately human. And I feel that as furries, we are kind of carrying on that legacy in a way that is sort of this expression of creativity that I also liken to the divine. Do you, do you want to mention anything? Certainly. In addition to all of that, and kind of tied into that, and I was actually going to get to this later on in the thing, but um, I've always kind of viewed furry as, you know, a bit more than just a fandom and a subculture, and today it is its own global culture. You know, this is a good example of how universal this tendency for humans to anthropomorphize things kind of in a way to sort of blend your consciousness with something outside of our own humanity to make us broader and fuller. And I feel that furry is a global culture. You know, it's unique because it's a self-generated culture. We create this culture for us and for everyone else in it, which is really special and is really the fundamental core of what we human beings have been doing since we came down out of the trees in Africa back in the day, you know, and, and we're sitting here today at this convention, part of the same process, part of this ancient thing, made new and modern and futuristic for the theme of the con, but yeah. it's something that, you know, in addition to it being fun and all that, I think that there's something deeper um, tied in with it that we can all explore in our own ways and together. Okay, so what do we mean by the occult? Well, first off, what does a cult mean, Triad? <laughs> well, this is an often misunderstood word due to the fact that it contains the word cult, but occult is actually simply the Latin word for hidden. Um, you see it sometimes in scientific things like astronomy, like in, uh, when something hides something else. And what it refers to is simply hidden knowledge, hidden wisdom, things that um, are part of different cultures that sort of aren't easily accessible, you have to go digging. But it also refers to the hidden aspects of our own psyches and our own, you know, the depths of our beings, is that we have a lot of hidden areas to our, our own spirits and psyches and everything that we, you know, are kind of coming into contact with when we're doing esoteric practices and also when we're making our fursonas and things like that. So just to get that out of the way, all it means is hidden and there's a lot of interesting hidden stuff out there. Yeah. 
So in the context of this presentation, we're going to be talking about a cult insofar as Western mystery traditions, mysticism and um, hermeticism, paganism, including neo-paganism, and some reconstruction movements, witchcraft, and of course the amorphous concept of the new age. And so... So I just wanted to make a note before we get into this presentation about appropriation versus appreciation. I feel this is something that as both people who are in furries as well as in the occult and witchcraft communities that we need to be respectful um, and also um, when approaching another culture's spiritual beliefs, it is important to be very respectful most of the deities that we discuss from the Western mystery traditions, namely Kemetic, which is ancient Egyptian, which is, I think, the pantheon we both happen to have this, the most knowledge about. And then a little bit about some other pantheons. I don't include any examples from indigenous and living traditions because they are my stories to share or speak to. It's okay to learn and be curious about other cultures, but please don't try to claim them as your own and try to take up space and divert resources away from those communities of origin. And it's also important to respect people from that culture's voices if they're telling, some, telling you something is not for you. Very important. And then, of course, always, if you can, support artists and writers of these cultures and actively sharing their knowledge. I just want to plug real quick one of my really good friends, Tanya Song. She's part of the Tahono O'odham tribe down in Arizona, and she is also a musician, and she's has a show at 9 o'clock, and she is also one of the native furries that has been very vocal and active about um, native rights and activism. And then also a quick plug for my podcast, I interviewed a native furry named Solomon from the Anishami tribe. And he's talking about appropriation in the fandom. And so if you're interested more on that topic, I invite you to check out that podcast episode. Okay, so real quick, concepts of deity. So for this presentation, the kind of idea, what I'm saying when I say deity, is sort of the indigenous pre-Abrahamic gods and goddesses. And the kind of pathways that I come into knowledge about these particular deities is through sort of this neo-pagan movement, which includes pantheists, reconstructionists, and polytheists, and polyamorous as well as a polytheist, so I'm kind of like... Animism as well. Yeah, I actually talk about animism a little later, but yeah, we'll talk about that a bit. And then also with a lot of these, especially in the witchcraft community, you will hear people speak about having working relationships with deities. Just a show of hands, who here has like a working relationship with a deity? Okay. Anybody want to share real quick about which deity they work with? Anybody? Yeah. What? My two are Hakate and Baphomet. Oh, Baphomet and Hakate. Well, you actually talk about Baphomet here. And then, of course, Hakate is very, she's the goddess of crossroads and witches. Yeah, what's up? Who? Nemesis, interesting. Okay, and you? I'm just like a trickster god. That's an archetype. That's also something I wanted to mention. So, the psychologist Carl Jung is credited for this concept of archetypes. And do you want to explain what archetypes are just a little bit? 
I'll try to. <laughs> so an archetype is kind of a... Um, it's like a collective. It's a, it's a, well, that's kind of what a collective unconscious is. But an archetype... Oh, what's an easy way of putting this? Essentially, it's kind of like a universal theme. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, it's like a trope. Uh, you could say definitely a good way of putting it. That kind of different cultures have different archetypes, but archetypes themselves are fairly universal. universal. So you'll have, you know... Thunder gods and goddesses and trickster deities and, you know, deities of fertility, deities of love and so forth, you know, that tend to cover major areas of our existence and experience. And so that's, I guess, in a nutshell. <laughs> There's a lot more to it than that, but I definitely suggest researching it some more. Yeah. Also, for those of you who might read the tarot, archetypes are very important in the tarot as well. Mm -hmm. And basically, they're just these constructs of human experience that we can identify with and draw power and wisdom from. So that's kind of how I view deity within the context of archetypes. And then I wanted to say that, like yoga, witchcraft is not a religion. It is a practice. And so... Anyone, I feel, this is my personal belief, can call themselves a witch. Witchcraft is a practice. It's not just something. Yeah, you want to say something? Yeah, yeah. yeah, totally. In addition to that, um, it, it's a practice, and you'll hear magic and witchcraft used interchangeably. They're, it's all semantics, really. But it, I've always viewed it as, in addition to a practice, is also our species' first technology. Yes. Um, and that's why all different cultures, almost every culture around the planet, has some form of magic to it. Even the Abrahamic traditions have magic to them. They just you know hear about it that often. But um, it's it's a technology that we created to you know interact with the world around us, like all of our other forms of technology. It's just back when we didn't have the expertise with tools that we have now, we had to use our minds and the energies that we interfaced with and, and so on and so forth. So no matter what spiritual tradition or religion or, or that you may have, you can still adopt different magical practices. And if you dig deep enough, you'll probably find one that, that is tied in with your own uh, system. So as I had mentioned, Furry is not just this fandom. It is ancient. It is something that is tied innately to our own human evolution. And here is one of the oldest known pieces of art that we know exists. Staddle, which is dated to be around 3,500 years old. 35 to 40,000 years old. So this is one of the first pieces of art at least that we have that survived of human beings, like right when I think Cro-Magnes and um, Neanderthals were actually still alive at that point. I don't know if anyone's ever read Clan of the Cave Bear series. Yeah. We were making furry art before we were even truly human. And so this is something that's ancient. It's something that humans have tapped into as a form of expression from our earliest, earliest points. And why don't you talk a little bit about the sorcerer? I will let you do that because I'm going to have to sneeze. Okay. <laughs> um, so the sorcerer is in that, it's this cave painting in the Trollfreyres cave in Azure France. Again, one of the most early pieces of surviving artwork 
we find is furry, is, is it has these anthropomorphic characteristics. And I mean, there are theories as to why we were creating these sort of hybrid images as a way to connect with the animals, to be able to have power over the animals. But I think it was a way to commune with the divine that connects us all and that our Paleolithic ancestors understood this at a very innate and deep level and that we in this fandom get to kind of tap into that as a way with our, our creative expression. So for the bulk of this presentation, we are going to be talking about ancient Egypt just because I'm an Egyptophile. <laughs> And there's just so much material to work with. Oh, yes, yes, definitely. So there's nearly 1,500 gods and goddesses that are known by name, although fewer are known in detail. So we know of about 1,500 gods and goddesses. So if you happen to be the scion of some obscure Egyptian deity that I did not bring up today, I promise you that um, it's not because I didn't want to include, but there's a lot of them, so... For this presentation, we'll cover some of the more popular ones, of course, and give some background on them beyond fandom thirst traps, because let's be honest, Egyptian gods are thirst traps in this fandom. <laughs> so much of the images were mined from Fur Affinity, and I did get permission to use uh, quite a few of them, but every single image in this presentation is linked back to the artist on um, Fur Affinity, so after this presentation, I'll have this, this is a Google Doc, and so I'll have it online for anyone to access. So in case you are wanting to find any of the artists that are featured here, you'll be able to get to them. And I just wanted to say it was difficult to find work-safe material. <laughs> because again, furries really, really like sexualizing the Egyptian gods and deities. So first off, we have to start off with Ast, because I think I actually brought some free stickers. Oh, yeah, Shexy has them. So if you didn't get a sticker before the presentation, you can come get one afterwards. So Bast is, of course, the sexy cat girl goddess. And I consider her to be the patron goddess of the internet, because she's sexy and she's a cat. Hence, the, the internet is her domain, right? And so she is, she actually dates back to a pretty ancient time in Egypt. And she, the, the interesting thing about Bast is she started out as like a lion-headed deity similar to Sekhmet. In fact, her and Sekhmet are the same deity. They're just kind of like um, two sides of the same deity. So the cult of Bast was located in Bastidus in Lower Egypt, which is actually northern Egypt because the Nile runs uh, south to north, like the Willamette. Originally, a lion-headed goddess, a role shared by other deities such as Sekhmet. The daughter of Re, the sun god, Bast was an ancient deity whose ferocious nature was toned down considerably after the domestication of cats around 1500 before Common Era. So... With Bast, you actually see this different, how the relationship between cats and human beings was evolving. Because she starts out as this ferocious looking deity that is just like Sekhmet. In fact, a lot of her myths and Sekhmet's myths are, are kind of considered the same stories. As people started developing relationships with cats and cats were coming into cities, 
and starting to be taken care of. I don't think we ever domesticated cats. I think cats really domesticated us. <laughs> but she represents that. And so as you see, like her iconography becomes less like severe and becomes more sensual and sexy and more friendly towards humans. And then next we're gonna talk about, you look at the beautiful bast art. What did you say? Oh, she loves attention. Oh, that was another thing I wanted to make. She's a cat after all. She, I feel like Bast is in alignment with the depictions of her on the furry thirst trap. <laughs> you know, like, because she is. She's a goddess of, she's sexy. She's a goddess of fertility. She's a goddess of love. And so I feel like if the American gods, I don't know if anyone here is Neil Gaiman fan. <laughs> Maybe I'm asking the right group for that. But if the, the concept of American gods and deity is kind of how I think of the world, and that the more worship a deity receives, the more present and alive they are, I think Bast is doing pretty good for herself. <laughs> Sekhmet. Let's talk about Sekhmet. So Sekhmet is a lion-headed goddess, and she is a goddess of war. She is a goddess of destruction but she is also a protector and she is a defender of women and children and um, just sort of like my own personal connection to her back in 2020 when a lot of the George Floyd marches and protests were happening Sekhmet came to me in a dream and she told me to draw her like this because she is an African deity and she wanted everyone to know that Black Lives Matter. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, my favorite myth with Sekhmet comes from the one time she almost destroyed the world. And that was because the gods were pissed off at humans, and so they sent her to basically deal their justice. But because she's a lioness, she had a blood frenzy and was just killing, just killing everyone. So they got the gods together and they're like, we have to stop her before she kills everything. And so they brewed a bunch of beer and they poured it into a lake with blood. And so she came and she drank the beer and then fell asleep because she got drunk. And so there was a festival in ancient Egypt where people would get up really drunk as a way to honor and celebrate the fact the goddess didn't kill us all. So, yeah, she's a very powerful deity. I feel like she's one to invoke when you are in need of protection or if you want justice because her energy is very, very powerful. And I find that when I'm feeling like unsafe, she is one of the, the deities and energies I try to align with. Next up, we have another fandom favorite. <laughs> this is Anubis. Anubis is actually a uh, jackal-headed deity who presided over the embalming process and accompany dead kings to in the afterworld. So he was a psychopomp. When kings were being judged by Osiris, Anubis uh, placed their hearts on one side of the scale and a feather of, of Mayat on the other. 
and the god Toth recorded the results, which indicated whether the king could enter the afterworld. There's a lot of art of Anubis that is not work safe. <laughs> like, more than vast. And <laughs> more than anything. And this is just my opinion. I mean, do as thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. So if you really feel that you want to draw some sexy Anubis art, I do feel that he is a, a deity that's not quite as in alignment with those energies and you want to see something. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, uh, Anubis is one of those that, you know, despite the appearance being pretty nice, um, <laughs> the, the function is probably the polar opposite of <laughs> sex and pleasure and procreation that we can get, but, you know, we can update it for the 21st century a bit, too. But <laughs> <laughs> he's he's, he's, he's the, the good boy you want to see at the end of it all? Yeah, you want, you want that good boy on your side. You do want that good boy on your side. Your heart, in essence, isn't eaten by, is it Amon, the alligator-headed monster? Now, I'm going to let you talk about this one. All right. So, Thoth, or Toth, or however you want to pronounce it, because there's a million different ways of pronouncing these things. Toth is the Egyptian god of essentially knowledge, which in in, in Western esotericism, there's a saying, everything goes back to Egypt. Mm -hmm. And all of the knowledge and wisdom that we use from the structure of our magical layouts and all the different you know, Western traditions and everything goes back to this source of knowledge. And Thoth is that source. And for ceremonial magic, there's a lot of book reading, there's a lot of, you got to read a lot and do a lot of kind of intellectual stuff. And so Thoth is sort of the one you want to get into when you're, you know, learning all of this, getting in touch with, you know, the ancient knowledge. I'm not as into the Egyptian stuff as, as my partner here is, and she's definitely, or there rather, definitely more knowledgeable. However, uh, this is of the Egyptian uh, pantheon. This is the one that I identify with the most. Uh, it's also a central piece to Thelema, uh, you know, the Crowleyan kind of, despite what you think about Alistair Crowley, because, you know, Oh, I thought His system was, was pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, if you want to fill some stuff in, please feel free. Yeah, so he's an ibis-headed god, and so that is how he is often depicted. And he's usually depicted with some sort of writing utensil or scroll. He was the god of knowledge, but at his side was his partner, Shashat, who is my patron deity. She is the goddess of math and science, and she is one of the keepers of knowledge, like her partner Toth, or her, her consort. She's a really cute art of them. <laughs> so Shashat isn't exactly an anthro-deity, but somebody drew her as an anthro-deity, which I liked. <laughs> but yeah, she's, she's the goddess of math and science, and since we're in a legal state, I just want to point out that is a cannabis leaf about her because cannabis is a sacred herb, especially going back as far as Egypt. It was very important and used in rituals as well as being used as a way to create all kinds of materials. So, yeah, cannabis goes way back, especially in ancient Egypt. And so this is the deity I feel my strongest connection to. She has been guiding me a lot since 2017 when we watched the total solar eclipse that went through. That was kind of like my portal into connection with her. 
I'm actually getting her tattooed on me in a couple of weeks as well. So she is definitely my patron deity and as a science witch, I feel it's kind of part of my great work to bring her into the world more because she's been occulted for so long by patriarchy. So she is basically the feminine aspect to knowledge, to toth. And therefore, I want more people to know her and speak her name. Because the more uh, deity is remembered, the more powerful it becomes. So now let's talk about Horus. Horus is the god of the sun. He is the divine child. He is the son of Osiris and Isis. He's also probably one of the archetypes that uh, eventually inspired the mythos of uh, other Abrahamic <laughs> traditions. He is one of the many gods associated with a falcon. His name means he who is above or he is who is distant. And the falcon has been worshipped from earliest times as a cosmic deity whose body represents the heaven and whose eyes represent the sun and moon. And of course, the very iconic eye of Horus that you see with a lot of Egyptian art, that's his eye, and it represents truth. Horus is depicted as a falcon wearing the crown of the cobra, the double crown of Egypt. The hooded cobra, or Uraeus, which is the god and pharaohs wore on their foreheads. So I'm sure you've all seen it before. And it symbolizes light and royalty. So in addition to that, in um, Philema, Horus is also a central figure in uh, Crowleyan magic too, as the Book of the Law was dictated to Aleister Crowley, kind of the center, central piece of that particular tradition, which has influenced every other neo-pagan and magical tradition since then, mm-hmm. was essentially delivered to him via, you know, Horus when he was in Cairo, and if you ever get a chance to look into that, it's intense and fascinating and mildly horrifying, but it's something you won't soon forget. But um, just, to, just to show that these, uh, these deities are still alive and well and still giving us information that continues to influence us today. Oh, I did want to uh, talk a little bit about a myth. So Set is basically <laughs> the adversary. He's, he's sort of the god of darkness and chaos. And he was jealous of Osiris, so he killed him and cut off his body and hid all of his various different parts throughout Egypt. And Isis used her magic to basically put him all together and beget Horus <laughs> from the body of uh, the recon- reconstituted body of Osiris, sort of the abbreviated <laughs> version of his myth, which goes into a little more explicit detail that I'll go into here if anybody is interested. <laughs> the Egyptians did not have the same sort of moral framework that we do, so I'll just say that. Okay. Next up, we have Kunum, who is a ram god, and he actually was believed to have created humans. So he's an Egyptian fertility god, and he's associated with water and procreation, and he was worshipped from the first dynasty into the earliest centuries of the Common Era. He's represented as the ram with horizontal twisting horns, or as a man with a ram's head. 
and he was believed to have created humankind from clay like a potter. And this is a, something like a, you'll see as a, a theme in a lot of other religions is that humans were created by clay. In fact, you'll, you'll notice a similarity between this, the Osiris and Seth myth, and other things as archetypes, you could say, that led to Christian archetypes. Most of the differences between Christianity and the Abrahamic source, Judaism, come from Egyptian things. The idea of eating your god, eating your deity, like they do in communion, that comes from Egypt. That doesn't come from Judaism. Something that the Egyptians would do, they would make great cereal grain statues of, of honey and grain of their deities, and then everyone would feast upon them and sort of imbibe the gods. And so, like I said, when I say everything goes back to Egypt and the West, that means everything. <laughs> So next up, we have another little less known DT that I only really encountered when after I was starting to do research for this presentation, but maybe she'll ring a bell here. So this is Mothdet, which was a goddess in the ancient Egypt, and she was often depicted wearing the skin of a cheetah and protected against the bites of scorpions and snakes. And so she also is from the first dynasty and was prominent during the reign of Pharaoh Den, whose images appear on stone vessels. And so sometimes she's a, a serval, and so I keep saying serval, I wanted to make sure I didn't make that mistake, serval, or she's depicted as kind of this little weasel type of deity. So I've seen her depicted as both. Yeah, she's one of these deities that people often had in their homes. So she's kind of like a, a domestic protection deity. So if you're looking for sort of like a deity to have iconography to protect your home, she's a kind of a good one to invoke. Like I said, the, the, next, the next few ones we get to are a little more obscure, which is cool, but I still found art of them on FA, which thank you, furries. <laughs> <laughs> Next up is one that I, I really, I'm, like, I found during the course of making this presentation, and she just seems really cool. Her name is Tefnut. <laughs> and Tefnut is a deity of moisture, more moist air, dew, and rain in ancient Egypt. And she is the sister and consort of the air god Shu and the mother god Geb and Nut. Oh, she also has a Greek incarnation. She was known as Tephnus to the ancient Greeks. And she's appeared as a, like a lioness. And this sort of depiction of her is found at Great Enid in Heliopolis. Yeah, and so she's, she's a lion-headed goddess like Sekhmet, but she's not ferocious like Sekhmet. She, she's actually more associated with water and moisture and rain which I thought was really interesting. Okay, so that is kind of the, the ones of the comedic pantheon that we're gonna talk about today. Again, if you are a follower of a god that we didn't get to in this presentation, I apologize. If you'd like to maybe in the round table talk a little bit about if you have a deity that is mentioned here, please do. All right, so we're gonna move to and Triad's going to tell us a little bit about Ganesha. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, I'm a little out of practice with my Vedic stuff here, but... You want me to tell this one? Yeah, I want you to... I'll get, I'll get, uh, I'll get Hanukkah next. Okay. 
So Ganesha wasn't actually started out. Well, first off, he is the ancient Indian deity of knowledge. He's also very popular as even outside of India. And he didn't actually start out as an anthro deity. The story goes that he was watching Pavarti bathe and Shiva got really angry and so he chopped off his head. And Pavarti was really mad and she's like, you gotta fix him up. And so Shiva just got an elephant head and <laughs> put it on Ganesh. And so Ganesha has an elephant head. But yeah, he's a good deity to invoke in times of knowledge, studying, remembering, because yeah, as we all know, elephants have really good memories. And then the next Vedic deity that we're going to talk about is the one you are going to talk about. Sounds good. So Hanuman is a Hindu god and divine... Vanara. Vanara, thank you. Sorry, <laughs> I did, I'm not doing those justice. Companion of the god Rama. Hanuman is one of the central characters of the Hindu epic Ramayana. He is an ardent devotee of Rama, the, one of the chief deities in, in the Vedic pantheons, and one of the, bear with me here, Shira. Yeah, don't even try. Shira Javinis, I believe. <laughs> Hanuman is the son of the wind god Vayu, who in several stories played a direct role in Hanuman's birth. Hanuman is also mentioned in several other texts, such as the Mahabharata and various uh, Puranas. Now, Hanuman is an anthropomorphic deity, and just a kind of an interesting uh, story of what happens when suddenly there aren't people around to worship a deity, especially in a very active culture like this one. So during the pandemic, um, a lot of Hanuman temples in India generally have a lot of monkeys that hang out around them and are fed by you know tourists and devotees and things like that. Well, once the pan, you know, you remember early on in 2020 when everyone was showing pictures of oh, this, the animals are coming back into the streets and all this. Well, in India near the Hanuman temples, uh, the in the monkeys kind of went crazy and got really violent and formed packs, roving packs that would terrorize people getting their groceries. <laughs> Uh, you know, and would steal their food and, and just cause general terror. And I remember just making front page news a couple of times. And so it, it's just an example that, you know, there can be consequences <laughs> if you're not uh, giving your, your allies up there uh, their due. And uh, if they're very active, they'll let you know. <laughs> uh, so here's an interesting one. Uh, you've probably seen many references to this one in symbolism, but haven't heard maybe too much about it. Uh, Baal is an ancient Eastern Mediterranean uh, fertility deity of the Levant that eventually both influenced certain, uh, uh, obviously, Baphomet, but also, interestingly enough, there's an etymological link between Baal and El, uh, one of the commonly used uh, names for the Hebrew god. In, back in those days, in that era, Baal, in addition to being a fertility god, you know, bull or goat-headed, was also meant to denote kingship among deities, which is why Baal became El or El Shaddai, which you hear a lot in Kabbalah and things like that. It also turned into Moloch in the Bible when they were sort of trash-talking the, their local indigenous deities. And... Other than that, there's not a great deal. There's there's human forms and anthro forms. I, of course, prefer the anthro form with the child, you know, kind of 
denoting, well, maybe not, that may be more the biblical depiction there, which yeah, we're not, we won't get into, but, uh, <laughs> but overall, it's a, yeah, it was a very commonly worshipped fertility deity in the Levant, you know, around Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, that region, just kind of an interesting one to throw in there that's not usually, uh, it's also the Canaanite equivalent of Zeus, so it, it fits that kind of king of the gods archetype. All right, now moving to another culture that I wanted to talk about today, and that is pre-Christian Europe. And there are other anthro deities, but I just want to touch on one specifically that is pretty big, especially in neo-pagan circles, and that's Karunos. Karunos. His name is really interesting because it's so old. It was before writing, so we don't really know how it's pronounced, Karunos. Not only that, uh, Kernunos, or however it's pronounced, is actually the Latinization of it. That, that was the name that the Romans came up with it when uh, they interacted and made it up into uh, British Isles. But he's also known as the Horned One. In Celtic religion, an archaic and powerful deity who was widely worshipped as the Lord of Wild Things. Karunos may have had a variety of names in different parts of the Celtic world, but his attributes were generally consistent. He wore stag antlers and was sometimes accompanied by a stag or sacred ram-horned serpent that was also a deity in its own right. He wore the torque, which is sort of like a crown in ancient Celtic culture, and the earliest known depictions of him were found in Val Camonica in northern Italy, which I think this one is like from 400 BC, this, this sort of um, metal that's actually from an artifact yeah, up there. And so the horned god, I feel, is one of these really ancient, ancient archetypes that has been around for as long as humans have been humans, maybe before. He has been demonized, and sort of in the depictions of him have kind of been turned into the archetype of Satan in modern Christianity. But the, the horned god is not evil. He, he's dark, but he's also benevolent. He's also sort of the archetypal consort of the goddess. And so he's kind of like, I like to think of him as the panacea to toxic masculinity, because he is masculinity embodied as the benevolent masculine energy that is the consort to the goddess. Do you want to say anything else about him? Yeah, just, just to elaborate just a little bit more, um, Kernunos and Baal were both the main sources of and the... Pan. And Pan. Pan being the biggest, of course, but essentially that whole archetype going across, you know, Europe and East, or I'm sorry, Western Asia was a big one that all, again, went into the archetypical depiction of Satan and then used to sort of go through and get rid of the indigenous European traditions, thankfully not in completely... Yeah, and if you're interested in finding out about the Horn of God a little bit more, there's a new book out by Jason Mankey, who's a um, pretty prolific pagan author called The Horn God of the Witches. So I recommend that if you are interested in learning more about this deity. So let's go on to, I think this is the last one we talk about in this presentation before we move into the next part. And this one we definitely wanted to mention. So this is Baphomet, Baphomet, the sacred androgyny. Baphomet is a deity that the Knights Templar allegedly worshipped. 
and that subsequently was incorporated into occult and mystical traditions. The name Baphomet appearing in the trial transcripts from the Inquisition of the Knights Templar in 1307. It first came to popular English use in the 19th century during the debate and speculation on the reasons uh, for the suppression of the Templars, and that was uh, this this art of him of them because the sacred androgynine is the alchemical combination of both polarities of male and female that is inherent. And this gesture that they are doing is used in alchemy is uh, as above, so below. And the words for basically dissolve and uh, manifest are in both arms. There's also his phallus, or their phallus is the twining, yeah, the caduceus, which is a symbol of the goddess and also represents medicine and wisdom because the serpent is often represented in various different occult traditions. And one thing to point out here is another, probably the most common theme in most forms of, of magic is the idea of complementary opposites that you have, that opposing forces, factors, philosophies, and things like that don't necessarily oppose one another. In fact, in most cases, they complement. So Baphomet is a good example of the blending of male and female, dark and light, essentially all of the major polarities versus what mainstream Western society tends to do, which is to think in terms of dualisms. Things are either A or B, but not A and B. In this case, uh, one of the most important things, even even symbols you see it in, for example, the hexagram or the Star of David is, is a great example of the male, you know, upward pointing triangle, the female downward pointing triangle coming together in the sacred union. And so that's, you know, one of the big themes is, is the blending of opposing facets of life, because when we can take these complementary opposites and bring them together in ourselves, we find that we end up with a synergy, you know, one plus one equals three rather than two, and we, we find that there's so much more to us in general than just what society tells us to be, what our upbringing had for us and everything like that. You know, we can truly find who we really are. The whole point of the Lima and Crowley's thing is to find Find what you're here on this planet to do, your unique talents, your skills, everything that you're good at, and find what you're here to do, because every one of you has a, a, a will and a reason for being here, and the, most, the whole goal of this entire enterprise of magic and all of this is to find that in yourself, find your voice, your experiences, the opposing polarities in yourself and blend them together so that you can be the person that you were truly meant to be. No matter what, it should be empowering and it should, you know, kind of enhance both your personal evolution and, with any luck, the evolution of humanity. Mm -hmm. But, you know. This is also a really important deity to the Satanic Temple. And so I just wanted to mention that um, Baphomet statue was erected. I don't think it got to stay on the Arkansas <laughs> Capitol because it would have been dangerous. But um, yeah, it did for a little while. But the TST is a great organization. Just to plug them real quick because they are on the forefront. They are on the forefront of the fight against 
the forced birth movement and so reproductive rights. And also, it is one of the tenets that the government shall not inviolate, like, violate one's bodily autonomy. So the DST is a great organization. Um, I'm affiliated with them up in uh, Portland. And also, if you are wanting to know a little bit more about them, I recommend a documentary. I think it's on Netflix called Hail Satan. Highly recommend that documentary. Yeah, it's, it's not just about Satan. <laughs> it's, it's a lot more. A lot more. Okay, so now we're kind of moving into the next part of this, which is good because we are like just about at seven o'clock. One of our intentions in kind of bringing this to this convention is to sort of invite all of us here to consider the idea of furry spirituality, and that is in what if we are more than just a fandom? What if we are the inheritors of this ancient human connection to the divine. And we allow ourselves to, this to be more than just some fun hobby. Like what if this is deeper? And what aspects of spirituality can the fandom provide? And then this is here where I wanted to make a plug about animism because animism is one of the most ancient forms of spirituality in humans. And this is essentially the idea that everything has a spirit. Everything has, everything is sacred, everything is divine, and everything is worthy of our respect and consideration. And when you think about that in the prospect of everything is, has a spirit, then, and, and we are part of everything, then I feel it is a way for us to move away from this destructive late-stage capitalism that's destroying our planet and making it inhospitable for most species, including ourselves, and move towards a paradigm shift where we are a part of the natural world as opposed to against it. And I know you want to say stuff. Thank you. So I don't know if anyone here is familiar with Terrence McKenna. Um, good, I've got a few hands there. So one of my favorite concepts of his <clears throat> is the idea of the archaic revival, mm. which is that since uh, about the 1960s or so, once, you know, LSD came along and people started, you know, opening up to a lot of new experiences and things, you saw this, this sudden shift in Western civilization's consciousness, you know, starting with the counterculture and its various incarnations, you know, hippies and punks and glam and all this stuff. But you'll find that from that point, we have, are kind of tied into this as well because the people in the 60s eventually created the you know PCs and computers and the technology that our culture relies on to operate, and we've lived in that and created our own culture in that, and now that is the world we live in, you know. And so the idea is is that around this time um, we started. For the first time in about 1,500 years or so in the West, we started opening up to indigenous practices of our own cultures, of other cultures around the world, and it began to reawaken a lot of these long dormant aspects of our you know, human experience that in this society for 1,500 to 2,000 years, we have been forbidden to do. Mm. You know, this stuff is, is essentially our birthright, you know, higher states of consciousness, furries, blending with nature, all these different things. 
are, are part of, you know, something that is awakening. And I think more than ever, it's important for us to, you know, at least consider that while you're having fun at the first suit raves, all the parties and all that stuff. That's it's a, totally a way of a static practice, by the way. Yeah, totally, totally part of all of this, too. So when you're out dancing, you're out, you know, well, again, maybe getting a little inebriated and all that, having a good time, just remember that what you might, you're doing may very well be something that's a lot older than any of us can even conceive. Yeah, and then before we open it up to um, the roundtable discussion, I did want to bring up something that I have been thinking a lot about, and that is comes from a book called The Artist Way by Julian Cameron. And this is a wonderful book if you happen to be an artist that is having any kind of creative blocks, because this book puts forth as creativity as the most like divine form of expression that humans, as we all have, as our birthright, as divine beings, when we create, we are tapping into that. We are tapping into that current. And here in the furry fandom, we are really creative. We make music, we make fursuits, we make art, we are very creative. And I feel like I want to inspire more people that this creativity is more than just some silly little thing I like to do on weekends or, you know, just something I like to do for fun. This is a divine expression. This is something sacred and holy. And so with that, I'd like to go ahead and um, open up the floor for discussion and questions. And um, yeah, we can, uh, we can pass the microphone around in case you want to speak about anything in particular. So yeah, let's, oh wait, before we do that, let me just uh, conclude the presentation. And I just wanted to give you y'all some ways to find the both of us. So you can find me, Angel. I am one of the coordinators of the Wild Witches of the Willamette. And so we are a witch wide web located uh, throughout the Willamette Valley. PR is actually one of my um, coordinators in that project. Also, I am the co-host of the Science Witch podcast with um, my best friend, Igu, where we talk about how science and witchcraft interact, intersect, and affirm one another. And I'm one of the moderators of the Cascadia Furs, and so we are a sort of collective furry community and we're kind of centered in the Salem, Portland, and Eugene area, but we're looking to expand and collaborate with other furry groups. And I'm also on Twitter, I'm on Instagram and Telegram, and I do have a fur affinity. And now, I want you to tell them a little bit about you, my love. Thank you, thank you. So, I'm all over the place. Um, for my science, furry science fiction universe, which again is open-ended and collaborative, if anyone's a writer or anything like that, I'm definitely interested to hear. That's theanasianuniverse.com. Um, I am also, well, me and a friend, are also, um, do, I live down in Phoenix, Arizona, which is the only place, in the, one of the only places in North America that you can grow frankincense and myrrh. And so what we're doing is starting a, um, a company, we'll have, actually have the website up in about a week or two, called Aeon Essences. Uh, we'll have a furry brand, Anthro Esoterica, so look out for that at uh, the con uh, at the uh, dealer's den in a year or two. Otherwise, my music, art, and a lot of my writing that's open to the public is on uh, Fur Affinity and So Furry. Uh, usually Triad Fox, a good try Google search for Triad Fox will find it. 
But I'm also Triad Fox on Twitter and Triad Fox on Telegram, so for real large sites and all that. So, and thank you. Thank you so much to Triad Fox for hosting this panel with me at the convention. Stay tuned for more collaborative efforts from us, and be sure to check out the first novel in the Anasian series, The Winds of Altura, as well as other stories and audiobooks from their science fiction series, The Anasian Universe. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at questions at sciencewitchpodcast.com. You can find us on social media at sciencewitchpodcast on Instagram and Facebook, and sciencewitchpod on Twitter. Until next time, live long and prosper, and blessed be.